0: There are two rules in life. There are two rules in life. Number one, never give out all the information. And as a preacher, that's a hard lesson to learn, but it's a rule that I try to live by. There's always more to say, more that could be said, more that needs to be said, but we feel that there's never enough time, so... We give as much as we can, when we can, hoping and praying that there will be other occasions in which we might be able to say a little bit more about whatever it is we're preaching. Well, today I get to say a little bit more about forgiveness, and I get to do so from the same parable we explored last week, only today we will look at it from a slightly different angle. And engage the parable looking for some of the more practical aspects of forgiveness. I want us to think about how to forgive. How to forgive the penitent. How to forgive the obstinate. How to forgive those who deserve it and to forgive those who don't deserve it. How to forgive those who desire it and those who don't desire it. In order for us to forgive and in order for our forgiveness to have its proper effect to be effectual in our life, there are certain ingredients that we need. Now, there might be more than the ones I'm going to mention, but there certainly are not less than the ones I'm going to mention. There are some things we needed uh, that we need for our forgiveness to become effectual and to become more than just empty words. So in order for our forgiveness to take effect, these are some things we need to bring into the mix We need to pursue confrontation and conversation and conciliation, conversion and celebration. We need to practice all of these things if we're going to enjoy forgiveness and in order for forgiveness to have its proper effect. Now, I grant at the outset that all of these are difficult and hard in their own different ways, I can't tell you which of these is the hardest because at each stage of the journey of forgiveness, they all feel hard for different reasons. And they're all going to feel difficult as you make your way through this in your own relationships in life. But I want you to keep in mind the thing that we heard last week, hear it again this week. There is so much to forgive and so much to be forgiven. There are so many debts to cancel and so many people to set free that we simply cannot treat forgiveness as a soft option. It is an obligation of grace that God has laid upon us. So if you're serious about forgiving others or about being forgiven by others, then you will take these things to heart. As we go through the message today, I want us to tackle these One at a time, confrontation, conversation, conciliation, conversion, and celebration. Forgiveness requires some form of personal engagement. And that is where you and another person or persons meet together to address the source or the cause of whatever offense or grievance or problem stands between you. And whatever that thing is, that thing needs to be named if you want it to be made right. If you want the wrong to be made right, you've got to put a name to it. What is this thing that stands between us? What is causing the problem? You have to move back past abstractions and ethereal concepts. You've got to get down to it and say, this is the thing. And that's what you see in the parable. In this story, the father goes out to meet both of his sons and he meets them where they are, not where they should have been. He confronts them and their problems head on. And notice that he makes every effort to bring their sins, their guilt, their grievances, and their grudges, bring it all into the light. Someone has to make the first move. Maybe you have to make the first move. Maybe someone else has to make the first move. But someone has to make the first move. And in this story, the father makes the first move. Now you might think, well, no, the younger son did. But no, that's not true. The father made the first move because he never stopped looking for his son. He never stopped looking on the horizon, waiting for him to come home. The father always kept his heart open For his sons. So the father goes out to meet his sons where they are, not where they should have been. Yes, he goes out to meet the younger son who is coming from afar, but he also goes out to meet the older son who is nearby and yet in his heart is so far away. The father always had his eyes open for his sons. Now, I don't always quote Baptists as a Presbyterian minister, but when I do, it's usually Charles Spurgeon. And I love what the Prince of Preachers says about the father's eyes in his commentary, his sermon on this passage. He says, the father saw his sons. And there's a great deal in that word saw. He saw who it was, saw where he had come from, saw what he had been, saw what he was, and he saw what he would soon be. His father saw him. God has a way of seeing men and women that you and I cannot understand. He sees right through us at a glance as if we were made of glass. He sees all our past, our present, and our future. And it was not with icy eyes that the father looked on his son. Love leaped into his eyes. So when the father goes out to confront his sons, he does so in love. When you go out to confront others in your pursuit of forgiveness or in your desire to forgive others, make sure that you do it in love and make sure that that love shows up in your eyes and in your expressions and in your emotion. Make sure it's an embodied love and that will help you move to the next phase, which is conversation. Once you confront the person to address the problem, some form of communication is required. And when I say some form of communication is required, I'm urging you with all your heart to not imagine that that includes text messaging or email or even a phone call. Face-to-face conversation and dialogue between these two parties is what is required. You've got to be able to meet and tell each other the truth in love over coffee, over a table, so you can talk it out, so you can tell what happened and where it hurts and why it matters. And don't try to do it through other people or hiding behind others, but make sure that you engage in face-to-face conversation as far as it depends on you with the offending parties. Why? Because this is what we see This is how God interacts with us. This is what we see in the parable. It's not communication from a distance or communication through something or someone else. It is face to face encounter. When the younger son came to his senses and repented his sins and returned home, he had a confession in his mouth. He is ready to tell on himself. He is ready to go on record against himself. He is ready to take ownership of his many sins and whatever the consequences are. He is ready to repent his sins and even ready to repair and repay the damage. When he says, I will ask to be one of my father's servants, that's what he has in mind, not just eating but I'm going to try to work and pay off the debt that I owe my father. But when the father saw him, he ran out to meet him, not in wrath and in anger, but in joy. He is so happy to see his son and so eager to forgive him that he doesn't even let his son get his full confession out. He doesn't have to hear about all of his escapades and about all of his sins. He doesn't need to hear the nitty-gritty details of what he's been doing these many years away in the far country. The father had decided from the moment the son left, and we would even say prior to the son's birth and prior to his leaving, the father has decided in advance to love his son, and he has decided in advance that if he ever sees his son again, He's not going to give him a piece of his mind. He's going to give him his whole heart because he loves his son. And so he shows his son mercy and love and he cancels his debts in love. And all of this takes place over a conversation between the two of them. When the older son raged against his father and refused to come and join the celebration, notice the father walked out to him. He walked out to him. Not in pride, not in anger, but he walks out gently and quietly. And the text says that he entreated his son the word entreat means that he called him close, put his arm around him, and comforted him. And that's what it means to treat, to entreat. The father listens to his son up close and personal. He lets his son express himself to vent all of his anger, to fume and to get it all off of his chest. He doesn't argue or correct, or dispute what his son says, he listens, he takes all of it. His son is right about some of the things he says, but he's wrong about an awful lot of the things he says. And none of that matters in that moment. There's something more at stake here than winning this argument, than reasoning with his son The father stays close to his son, keeps his son close to him, and keeps listening. And when all is said and done, the father does for this older son what he had done for the younger son. Is he gave him all of his heart. And he says, son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You're mine. And so he shows mercy and forgives his son And in love, he sets his son free. Sets him free from what? Sets him free from himself. From his own chains and his own cage that he has built up around himself. And all of this took place over a conversation between the two of them. Now, once you've confronted a situation and engaged someone in conversation, something else needs to take place. Some form of conciliation is required. Now, I grant that we don't use the word conciliation on a daily basis. In fact, this is probably the first time in my life, except for the first service, that I've even used this word. But it's a great word because it's something that we do every day without thinking about it, even if we don't use this word. Because what the word means is this, that we help each other calm down. We de-escalate situations. We diffuse the tension. We negotiate the peace. This is what the father is doing for both of his sons. Why? Because the father loves both of his sons. He loves the penitent son and the obstinate son. And he wants both of them to cast away their guilt, their grievances, and their grudges. He wants both of them to come all the way home in joy and in peace. He wants them both to experience free grace in love. He wants them both to cancel their debts against each other and to set each other free. He wants them to celebrate life and love in his house, not commemorate death and destruction. It's time to move on. To go forward. And it is the undying and unyielding love of the father for both his sons that diffuses their grief and their gripes. The father forgave both of his sons. He canceled their debts. He set them free. He did it for the penitent son. He did it for the obstinate son. He did it for the one who desired it. And for the one who didn't desire it. He did it for the one who deserved it and the one who didn't deserve it. He cancels the debts of the penitent son who feels crushed under the weight of his own sins. And he sets free the obstinate son who feels trapped in a cage of servitude. The thing I want you to see here so easy to look at the sons all the time, but the thing I want you to see here is that the father never ceased to love either one of those sons. He always loved them. Nothing could ever separate his sons from his love. There's nothing that they ever thought, said, or did that would change their standing as his sons, whether they are nearby or far away, doing the right things or doing the wrong things. They were always his beloved sons there was never any doubt in his mind about who they were even if there was total doubt in their minds about who they were notice how both of the sons try to frame their story in light of their performance the younger son says i'm no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants He wants his father to see him the way he sees himself. Not as a son, but as a servant. Not as the father's own flesh and blood, but as a hired hand working in and around the father's house. The older son is no different, no better. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command." He wants his father to see him the way he sees himself, not as a son, but as a servant, not as his own flesh and blood, but as a hired hand in his house. Both of these sons face an identity crisis because they're looking at their own performance and they have developed a sense of self perception that is distorting reality. Their confession seems so humble on the surface. Just make me a servant. But scratch the surface, and you'll see how haughty and arrogant these confessions are in subtle ways. This is the way many people, including us, try to deal with our own sins and failures and frustrations. We keep flogging ourselves and punishing ourselves and reducing ourselves to what? To some aspect of our worst performance. And then we want other people to do the same because if we can get other people to confirm for us the way we perceive ourselves in this wretched state, in this wasted state, that we're just slaves and not sons then it confirms us in our misery. It justifies us in our self-framed identity. But notice that the father refuses to let those sons in the parable and to let you sons and daughters in this life frame your own story. The father reframes the story for us. In order for forgiveness to have its full effect, we must change the way we see ourselves. We must change the way we see ourselves. We must come to see ourselves and accept ourselves, forgive ourselves, and even love ourselves the way the Father does. Because it's only in the light of the love of God that we're going to see ourselves accurately, truly, properly, and to the extent that we try to see ourselves outside the love of God, we are going to have a distorted self-image, a distorted self-identity. We're going to misunderstand who we are and what God the Father has made us to be. So I want to say to you, you might feel like a servant, but you are a son. You might feel like a hired hand, but you are an heir. You might feel like a failure, but you're still God's family. You might feel lost, but you are found. And you might feel dead, but you're so alive. And you might feel left out, but you are so loved and so at home. And that is cause for celebration. Once you confront the situation and engage in conversation, and experience some level of conciliation and some conversion of heart and mind, you realize celebration is required. It's the only right response to forgiveness. And I'm not just talking about any kind or any form of celebration, not just any celebration will do, but it's the celebration of the Eucharist, the feast of Holy Communion. Because at this table stands the memorial of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The broken body and shed blood for sinners. The sign and seal of our forgiveness. The mark of our union and communion with Christ and with one another. It's when you forgive others or when you're forgiven by others that the proper response is celebration. It is to come in from the yard and come into the house. It is to worship and praise the Father by the Spirit in Jesus Christ. It's cause for music and dancing. It's to come to the table and celebrate the forgiveness of your sins and the cancellation of your debts and the setting free of your conscience, the reframing of your story in light of God's love for you. When the father forgave his sons and canceled their debts and set them free, notice that he gave them both the same reason. If they were to ask, why? Why did you forgive me? How could you possibly do this? And his answer is the same for both. It is fitting to celebrate because your brother was dead and is alive. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that that is just as true for you as it was for the sons in the parable, if not more true. Why? Because our elder brother, Jesus Christ, for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate And he suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. St. Paul put it this way in Romans 5 the Father's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Not while we were doing all the right stuff, not while we had it all together. Not while we were at our best, but at just the right time. While we were still weak. Christ died for the penitent and the obstinate. While we were still sinners in the faraway place or nearby, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, refusing to come into the party. Christ died for us to bring us back to our father's house. Our brother was dead and now he is alive. We were lost and now we are found. And now that we are back home, back at our father's house, the proper response to all these things is to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ our Lord Through whom we have now received the forgiveness of sins, the freedom of guilt, the freedom from the fear of death, the freedom from our own self-consciousness, the freedom from our own misguided perceptions of who we are. There is so much to forgive and so much to be forgiven, so many debts to cancel and so many people to set free. So what is our response to all these things? Brothers and sisters, let's be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as the Father in Jesus Christ, by the grace of the Spirit, has forgiven us. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. And are willing to give more than we desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy. Forgive us those things that plague our conscience. The debts that we're afraid to cancel. The chains that we're afraid to cast off. And give us those good things which we are not worthy to ask but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior and Lord. Amen.